this evening, excuse me, I'd like to just talk with you a little bit about fear. Look in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. And the same day when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when he had sent away the multitudes, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they wake him, and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we pray now for the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that that you would give spiritual power in this service for exclusively for your glory. God, I pray that you would truly be exalted and lifted. So, Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our midst. I pray especially for the hearers, God, that you would anoint their ears. They would hear truth that would help them. God, thank you for the great privilege of having a service tonight. Lord, please help us, Lord to meet with you, to know you, to love you better for having been here. In Jesus' name, amen. It had been a busy stretch of ministry. The crowds were enormous. It seems, excuse me, that there were tens of thousands of people, and there were many needs. The disciples are in a place of seeking to meet the needs of the world which is around them, and I believe they feel overwhelmed. I believe they feel compressed. As Jesus is moving and ministering, they're seeing these great works that are being done. They're seeing people saved. They're seeing people reached. And yet, they are so small, so few in number. And I believe within them, there begins to arise a certain sense of apprehension, a certain uneasiness, and a certain fear begins to creep into them. It begins to exert a control, at first under the surface, but perhaps it begins to rise in a more pronounced way. Perhaps they are becoming a bit nervous and a bit anxious in the situation that they, are, they see themselves in. So Jesus tells them, we're going to take a journey on a boat, and we're going to go to the other side. As they make their way to the boat and get in the boat, water taxis come up. It seems that there was a tremendous amount of excitement about Jesus. We have to remember Jesus was a household name. He was known throughout Israel, and particularly in the second half of his ministry. He is known. And as he makes his way in the boat, in the boat there, those water taxis and other people are around them. But eventually, they get out into the, ocean, out into the Lake of Galilee. Look at verse 35. And the same day, when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitudes, they took them, even as he was, in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. 
I've been to, uh, Israel's only about a four hour trip from us, very reasonable to get there. I've, I've been to the Lake of Galilee a few times and there are these crevices, these valleys really, that come from the west. The winds off of the Mediterranean are channeled through those, create differences in pressure and create very severe storms very quickly on the lake. I've also seen archeological replicas of the boats that they used, and they were relatively small boats. They were about a meter and a half to two meters long, about wide, excuse me, and about five meters long. And as they're in this storm, you could see the waves crashing over the sides of the ship. You can see the men in there filled with fear, with a certain sense of unease as water is continuing to crash over the sides and settle among their feet. They are, at, they are at anxious, they are nervous, and they are struggling in this situation. In verse 38, we see Jesus is asleep on a pillow, and he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awaked him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, if you read this, and from our own human understanding and the way that we think about faith and the way that we think about fear, the fear seems very legitimate. They're in a storm. They're in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee. They're, they could be a couple of miles from the shore. And what are they to do? Jesus seems to be unconcerned, unmoved by the situation. He is asleep on a pillow in the midst of this storm. They feel like they are on their own and they have no help. And the problem has to be resolved. Something has to be done. And they speak to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Why are you not moving? Why are you not more involved? Why are you not bringing this to a resolution? What is going on here, Jesus? There is a storm that we are in. And Jesus, in verse 39, he arose, the Bible says, he rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, and this seems so incongruent, it just doesn't seem to fit with the account that is here. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith. It's a crisis. Of course there is going to be fear. It's a situation that seems out of control. Of course they are going to be afraid. Jesus seems to be insensitive. Can he not see that something needs to be done, that this situation needs to be dealt with? As we read this, we can begin to attribute to Jesus a sense of being out of touch with the way that we feel the world that we live in, the journey that we are on, and the way that we think. But actually, Jesus is doing something quite interesting here. He's allowing them to come into a place of great crisis because he knows there is a lesson they need to learn about faith, about trusting him, about walking with him. And he's very deliberate here. He is very intentional here. This storm is by design. He has brought this storm to them. He has brought them to this crisis and to this situation because he wants to teach them about fear. And he wants to teach them 
about faith. And I think part of the problem is, is that we in our lives live in a world of fear, a world of apprehension. And I think that the, the, the way that we approach life is characterized by certain senses of unease and certain senses of anxiety, certain things that we see are really serious and that are really a growing concern and other things that we're a little bit more moderate about, but there's just this constant sense of unease as we're going through life and situations. In the world of men, it is understandable. They spend their lives coping with uncertainty, saying fear is normal and trusting him with our fears is not normal. And I think we kind of amalgamate that and we say, well, we trust God for some of it, but we work through the rest of it. And as we work through the rest of it, we're, we're surrounded with a sense of apprehension and a sense of fear. Notice in verse 40 what he does. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful and how is it that you have no faith? You see, I think he wants us to think more deeply about fear. To think more comprehensively about fear. To come into the world that he has designed. To the world where he is real. Where he is the king. And to think at a core level about fear. Because fear can be so ingrained it is hard for us to comprehend. And to see the world the way that he sees things. You see, we oftentimes don't speak with extremes. We speak with what is common. For instance, we, say to our, we don't say to our children, don't murder, we say, be nice to people. We don't tell our children, don't drown, we say, play in the shallow end of the pool. But Jesus is doing something different. He's not dealing with the common, he's dealing with the extreme, because he's setting a new baseline. He's setting a new standard. He's revealing what is the normal. And it seems to be that which is outrageous, but actually, it is not outrageous. He's establishing the normalcy of faith and trust in a believer. Through the distressful situation of a boat filling with water, he brings us to the end and he lays the foundation that our faith is to be rooted in him. It is to be that which is grounded in him. And the problem was that when the disciples got into the boat, they were not men of faith. They were men of fear. They were not men of trust. They were not men who loved him and looked to him and trusted him. Can you see the great conflict that is in their life? As they are in the boat, in this storm, they are not turning to Jesus. They are not running to Jesus. They are not looking to Jesus to resolve this. They are trying to resolve it. They are on their hands and knees trying to scoop the water out of the boat. The storm is raging. The water is crashing. And still they will not turn. They will not look. They will not come to him because their life is ruled. Not by a love for him a walk with him and a trust in him, and that's what Jesus is confronting. That's not what's in their life. What's in their life is fear, and the fear is a whole different thing than faith. You see, with fear, there is a whole different set of actions, characteristics, and ways of thinking, ways of behaving than there is with faith. The two really are, are really opposite. They're really moving in a very different direction. 2 Timothy 1, many of us remember, have memorized this. It says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love 
and of a sound mind. So God has not given, God has not granted, God has not brought into you and into your life that spirit of apprehension and ease. God has not given the spirit of fear. That's not what he has given. He has given a life of spiritual power, of victory, of accomplishment, of answers to prayer, of deliverance, of protection, of provision. That is what he has brought into our life. And the spirit of apprehension and the spirit of fear reveals there is something that is not right. There is something that is off balance in our spiritual life, in our walk with him, and the way that we relate to him. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 18. I want to give you a quick picture of this. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 18, the Bible says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now think about that for a minute. There is no fear in agape love. You know, when we're fearful, we're focused on what we can lose. Love is focused on what we can give, how we can bless. When we are fearful, there's a selfish sense of trying to hold what we have. And it's a fertile ground for fear. That when we love, when we have the love of God within us, we're looking to him because we love him. We're trusting him. We want to rest in him. We want to rely on him. We want to go forward with him. But fear is different. Fear has a sense of being outside, of independent of him. There's a sense of idolatry and selfishness in the fear. There's a sense of me not bringing these things to him, not trusting him with things that are in my life because they're what I want. They're where my heart is. They're the direction that I'm going. This is me. And this is my direction and my place, and that's where the fear lives. That's where the fear inhabits. That's the place that fear is. That's not the place where faith is. That's not where the place of trusting is. That's not where the, the place where walking with God is. They're just two very, very different things. And can I tell you that fear is controlling? An aerosol propellant called trichlorothane 111 had been used in spray cans of household cleaners, but it was deadly when used wrong. In the early 80s, teenagers discovered that by inhaling that, they could get a certain high from it. And there was a lot of damage and a lot of lives. And a solicitor, or I'm sorry, as you say, lawyer, said, well, we need to fix this. And so the manufacturers wanted to put a larger sign on it a larger label on it saying, be careful, don't do this. And he said, no, that will just encourage them. They'll see that as a challenge, and they'll, that'll actually increase it. He said, what we need to do is, remember, what do teenagers fear? Teenagers are very concerned with their appearance, and particularly their face. So they put a label on it that said, if you inhale this product, there is a high likelihood that your face will be disfigured. And it actually dropped precipitously because of it, because they knew they would be afraid of that. They were looking, they're thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their appearance, and that fear controlled them. And they knew 
it would do that. You see, fear thrives in the midst of independence from God and a certain self-focus in our life. I think a lot of fear arises when I have areas of my life that are not surrendered to God. There's parts of my life that I haven't really given over to Him. And, and I think it particularly in those fears that are very pronounced, very, things that are important to us, things like health, relationships, family. And I think when we give them over to God and they come under His authority and we're looking to Him for the result in these things, for the outcome of these things, I think it's just a very, very different world that we're in. I think fear really has a sense of idolatry. I think it's, it's really centered in it. There's just that sense of having something that is more important than God. It's something that we really want, but we're not willing to give over to him. And that's where the disciples are. They want this boat to be fixed. They're about, fear is very lateral. It's very much associated with this world and what we have in this world. And the disciples are in that realm. This is important. This is valuable to them. They want to fix this. They want to work through this. They want this to happen. And they're not turning. They're not looking to him. They're not trusting him. And isn't that a picture of our life? That we have perhaps zones in our life and we go through periods of our life where things aren't really given over to him, that are not trusted to him. And that's where the fear is. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. That sometimes we can be in a storm and still not look to him. Sometimes our world could be unraveling and we're still not looking to him. We may say that we're looking to him. We may act like we're looking to him, but we're not really looking to him. And Jesus is confronting this. You see, it's not the storm that was the problem. It's what they had when they got into the boat. In the boat, they weren't loving him and trusting him. And the storm just brought it out. It just revealed what was in them. It revealed their inability to look to him because of what was already in their hearts. My friend, we must always come to the place of trust. We have to see that going through this life with a rich sense of resting in him and looking to him is the only way that we are going to be delivered from apprehension and fear. And when you fear something, ask yourself, am I looking to him? Am I trusting him with this thing that I'm fearing? Am I recognizing that he is the one that has the answer? That if I have cancer, he is the one. If he delivers me, he will deliver me, and if he doesn't, he is drawing me to himself. With my family, I'm looking to him. I'm asking him to work and to move, and he must move. He has to move. And if he does, it's as good as done. The healing is as good as there. And it is his will and his work. And I'm just going through life trusting, resting, seeing his ability, seeing his power, seeing the way that he works in my life. What I ultimately think Jesus is doing is, I think he is pressing the reset button here. He's getting them to see what is real. He's really just revealing himself. So as they're going through this trial and this stress, Jesus suddenly stands up and he rebukes. He calms. It's amazing. I think the howling wind was 
ceased in a moment, in an instant. It just completely stopped. I think the waters became as still as glass instantly. I think the only sign of the storm was the water dripping from their clothes and the water around their ankles. There was nothing. There was no evidence of the storm whatsoever once he rebuked it. And they saw him. It's like Jesus opened it. They saw his power. They saw his deliverance. And he literally reset them to where they should be, to where they must be. And I think that's what God does in our life. I think he, he brings us to that point of reset, of looking to him. He wants to change the way that we approach life, the way that we look to life. He wants to delegitimize the anxiety and the fear that characterizes us and bring us into the realm of trusting, looking, and resting in him. He's very active. He's very deliberate. He, he's asleep in the storm, and he's on a pillow, and they awake him, and he arises at that moment and says, peace be still, and teaches them that, pre, that pivotal lesson that he wants them to know. The three-letter word God is a word of power. It is a word of authority, ultimate transcendent power. He is the source of power. He is, by, he is the, the, author, the author of power. You know, it's interesting. We do a lot of apologetics in Ireland. And I talk with atheists, some very educated atheists. And I ask them, where did energy come from? No answer. Ever. Zero. There is no answer where energy came from in this world. And they say, well, we're working on it. And then I say, but you've been working on it for 100 years. And it's true. They have no answer for where material forms came from. They have no answer from where energy comes from. None. They have absolutely no idea how energy came into our world. God is the source of energy. He is the source of power. He is the one who has formed, who has created, who has brought life into existence. That is wholly his domain and his work. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. In other words, he is the infinite power, the source of power in nature, creation, history, and redemption. His endless power has been displayed in thousands of ways. And all around us we are seeing that power. Isn't it interesting, as they develop more telescopes, they're developing the universe is bigger <laughs> and bigger. And God is bigger and bigger than they've ever seen. So I just want us to, to ask ourselves a question. Are we like the men living in the boat, thinking that our power will deliver us in this life? Are we recognizing that God is the only power? He is the source of strength and power. And that if we are going to resolve these situations in our life, we need him. We need him. You know, when we were knocking on doors in Ireland for the first few years that we were there, we knocked on 17,000 doors. Heritage came over and they helped pass out 20,000 gospel um, uh, tracts, leaflets. And we passed out another 67,000 gospel leaflets in the two and a half years that we were there. And, you know, I was thinking it's impossible. Now, you don't say that, but it, I'm knocking on those doors in that cold rain. Week after week, it's dark. 
And I'm thinking, God, give me one. But we prayed, and you prayed, and we worked, and God did what only he can do. And I, can I tell you what you saw in that video? That is him. That is not me. That is he is the power. He is the source of power. So we must trust him, not in our own ascendancy and our, and our own sense of ability, but him. We must believe that he is and that he can and that he will. And when we do that, he establishes a new baseline, a new way that we approach life. Sometimes when counseling a disturbed person, you can run across a person that greatly overreacts. What we would shrug off as unimportant or something that we process fairly quickly, a disturbed person will view that small thing with extreme anger or hostility. And that's not correct. That's not the right baseline. That is not normal. And I think what God's doing here is he's revealing the baseline is trust in him. And when we come to the crisis, the extreme situation, our faith is still there. That's the baseline. We're looking to him. We're not into all of these other things and our own ability and our own works. He is the answer to what I'm facing. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. When we are faced with problems, he is the answer. He is the way forward. He is the means by which we are delivered. That's normal. That is the faith life. That is the place that God is bringing us to. That is the place that we must be, trusting him. We've got a situation at work, a conflict in our life, an issue that we are trying to resolve. Maybe we're coming to a missions conference and we're thinking about what we can do and how can we do it. It's the faith life. It's trusting him. It's loving him. It's walking with him. That's where we find the peace. That's where we find the resources that God brings to us, the enablement that God brings to us. It's looking to him. And throughout our lives, we're going to have these crises. We're going to have these difficulties. We're going to have these situations. And God is going to allow the storm to erupt so that we're trusting him. He's maybe perhaps getting our attention and getting us to realize that we have to trust him, that we must trust him. So consider... In closing, Jesus sitting serenely in the boat, resting in the middle of a storm. Stunning, isn't it? A middle of a storm. He's resting because he wants them to come to the end of themselves. He wants them to see how wrong it is to not trust him, how wrong it is to live in this world of anxiety and unease. That's not where we are. That's not what we are to be. We are to be trusting resting in his provision, his providence, and his amazing work in our life. If you'd stand together with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I pray that our lives really would be lives of abundance, lives of deliverance, lives of power and spiritual works. This is the place that God moves each of us to. 
And when you are in that realm of fear and realm of anxiety, ask yourself, have I really given this over to God? Have I really trusted him here in this area? Is the baseline in my life trust and dependence? Is that what I am seeking from him? I pray as Jenna plays the piano, whatever the need of your heart, I pray that as God speaks and he moves, that you allow him to yield, you'll yield to him and allow him to work in your midst.